Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest today has been called the funniest and the fiercest opponent of groupthink. He's also been called the most hated man on UK campuses. Brendan O'Neill is the editor of Spiked Online, but he's also written for The Sun, for The Australian, for The Spectator and many others. And he's known to maybe a wider audience by his many TV appearances, particularly on Sky Press Preview. And uh, his writing has been put into two books, two collections of essays, one called uh, The Duty to Offend and the other one called Anti-Woke. Welcome very much, Brendan. It's Hi, great Peter. to see you. Um, I want to start by uh, anti-woke. Mm. Um, what, what actually, where did woke originate originally? The actual, the actual word originate? That's a good question. It's been around for a long time yeah. and it has had different meanings, I think. But at the moment, I think what it means is a woke person is someone who has all the correct opinions yeah. on identity politics, um, left-wing issues or supposedly left-wing issues. Um, it's someone who, in my mind, is um, identitarian, quite censorious. They always want to crush people who are offensive or who say the wrong things or who are insufficiently PC. It's a woke person is kind of, in my mind, a, a pretty um, censorious, authoritarian culture. A Puritan. A Puritan. <laughs> a, Puritan a Puritanical culture yeah. warrior mm. who cannot abide the fact that there are people in the world who disagree with him or her. Yeah. So, um, interesting thing is about this, because it, it, it's, it's like a sort of like the second phase, is it not, of political correctness? Yes, it is. It is the second phase and might be, well, who knows? I lose track of phases. Yeah, it could be yeah. three or four or yeah. five. But yes, it follows on from political correctness. And, and in my mind, it's a more vicious form of political correctness because, you know, political correctness has been around for a long time. Yeah. It's this expectation that everyone must speak in the right way, behave in the right way. Uh, but what wokeness does is take that to the next level. Yeah. And the thing I find most obnoxious about wokeness is that, and I say this as someone who traditionally comes from a left-wing perspective and a left-wing background, is the way in which it kind of encourages you, in fact it demands that you think racially all the time. It really yeah. rehabilitates racial thinking. So everyone must always go through life thinking uh, that's a black person, that's yeah. a white person, that's a black trans person. You must always categorize yeah. people according to their inherited traits or their sexuality or their biology or whatever else it might be. Which that's the thing about wokeness I dislike most yeah. of all, which is it kind of, it utterly betrays the struggles, the more uh, progressive struggles of the 50s and 60s and 70s, which were all aimed at saying, look, what we have in common is more important than what divides us. And then you have wokeness coming in, this kind of new generation who think they're carrying on the battles of the past, but in my mind, they're actually undermining the battles of the yeah. past by reinventing the racial imagination and the censorious imagination and the demand that we treat everyone differently rather than the same. It is uh, basically regressive, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's like, it's keeping people in prisons, isn't it, in a way? Yes, it is. It's entirely regressive. I think it, it forces people back into the kind of biological boxes that they spent so long escaping yeah. from. And, um, you know, you see it in the way in which people stand up in meetings and discussions and they will say, as a white woman or as a black woman or as a gay man or as a trans yeah. person, they're, they're always announcing their identity before they say their point. Because yeah. in the woke era, 
your identity is more important than what you think. Your identity is more important than your character. Your colour is more important than your character. Now that obviously runs entirely counter to someone like Martin Luther King, who dreamt of a world in which character would be more important than colour. So I find these kind of um, declarations of identity incredibly interesting and very worrying Mm. because what they're effectively saying is um, how I was born, how I look, what my racial or sexual makeup is is the most important thing about me. Mm. And I don't think woke people realise how regressive that is because every single positive campaign of the past hundred years, I would say, has in some way been devoted to saying let's look at the the humanist sense of what we share in common rather than obsessing over our differences. Exactly. Interesting thing about the woke thing though, a bit like PC, it was once said about PC, is that everyone laughs at it mm. and says, "Oh God, you know, political correctness," but they all abide by it. Yes, you know. And I, I, this is my fear as well about the whole woke thing: is that somehow or other, um, even though people sort of feel uneasy about it and all the rest of it, it's like it seems to have such a strange power mm. over people that they actually don't want to put a foot wrong, wouldn't you say? I think that's really that's a, a really good point and that's a really important point about wokeness and about political correctness before yeah. it. you know there's all this obsession over political correctness gone mad which is not a phrase I've ever used as it happens and it is a bit of a daily mail phrase um, but what that kind of phraseology allowed was it allowed people to think that there were this kind of there was this extreme thing called political correctness which was kind of out there yeah. on the loony left and yeah. so on and in real society things were still pretty normal but in fact what was happening is that throughout that whole period political correct politically correct thinking was being mainstreamed more and more um, and you know people obsessed over the crazy examples like children being forbidden from singing bar bar black sheep or or christmas being renamed or whatever else it might be these kind of extreme examples people obsessed over those while losing sight of the fact that the fundamentals of political correctness, which is that there is a correct way to speak, if you don't speak in the correct way, you will be punished. Mm. There's a correct way to think. Mm. Um, Race is the most important thing in society and you must think racially all the time. All those kind of central features of political correctness through that period were becoming mainstream. And what you've ended up now, you know, most woke people tend to be relatively young you end up with a new generation who have been completely socialized and educated mm. in the PC way of thinking. And so when I speak on campuses or when I speak to young audiences, I'm always really shocked and depressed by how authoritarian they are, how entitled mm. they seem. And they, they have this sense that they are absolutely right about everything. And anyone who disagrees with them must be silenced. They have this incredibly strange um, intolerance mm of the existence of alternative points of view. And they don't realize quite how unusual that is in, in human history. Didn't you, uh, it was a piece you wrote in The Spectator some time ago now, but I think it was the Stepford Students, yes. is that right? The Stepford uh, Students. Uh, Stepford being an, an allusion, of course, to the movie. Yeah. Um, so these are the people you're talking about, basically. Yeah, Stepford Students. So it's the kind of, it's this new generation. And the first thing, the, the most important thing to say is that this is not all young people. No. By any stretch of the imagination, I actually think there's an incredibly interesting class divide. So if you go mm. to the red brick universities, yeah. uh, the newish universities, which tend to have a, a, a predominantly working class student base, they don't have the same 
problems of censorship or the same problems of Stepford students as Oxford and Cambridge and um, Durham and some of these kind of older universities do. So I think there are many interesting divides. There are many interesting questions as to where this stuff is powerful and where it's less powerful. But in the round, I think what's happening on campuses is that the the whole point of campus life, which is to uh, allow the a space in which all opinions can be expressed, all ideas can be explored, all orthodoxies can be challenged, that great ideal of the university is falling apart. Um, and it's falling apart partly because um, the teachers at universities are increasingly intolerant yeah. of un-PC thinking, and also because there is this new intake of you know, largely kind of upper middle class, Stepford style um, authoritarian millennials who want to know platform offensive speakers, hound um, trans sceptical feminists off campus, mm. forbid any open discussion about mass immigration, absolutely forbid any kind of critical discussion about Islam. They have all. They have this powerful sense. There are certain opinions you're not allowed to hold. Yeah. And um, the thing that worries me about that generation is that they will soon be graduating from these often quite prestigious universities and going into politics mm. and going into the media and going into social activism. And so those ideas, which are already quite pronounced in society itself, will become more pronounced. And that's a real worry. You you have been no platformed, have you not, mm. at university? What was that about? That was at Oxford yeah. in 2014. I was due to speak at Christchurch College um, with Timothy Stanley, and it was on the question of abortion. Mm. And it was a debate, and Timothy Stanley was going to put the pro-life case, and I was going to put the pro-choice case, and it was advertised as a, uh, uh, it was going to be a very serious moral discussion between two people who have very different views on the issue of abortion. Um, but uh, feminists at Christchurch and throughout Oxford University decided that it's unacceptable for men to talk about the issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. And so they refer to us as people without uteruses. No. That's how they refer to us in, in the things that they wrote. Mm -hmm. how, can, how dare these people without uteruses come to our campus? And they said that our presence on their campus would make them feel unsafe. And then Christchurch management um, kowtowed to their demands and banned the discussion. And I thought that was a really good example, mm. firstly, of the divisiveness of identity politics. So the idea that you can only speak about an issue if you directly experience it, or if you are the right sex, or if you are the right race. So that very kind of um, compartmentalizing dynamic that is unleashed by identity politics. That was the first problem. And the second was just the sheer censoriousness, the mm. willingness of students and university authorities to shut down discussions that they thought would make them unsafe, in, to use their language. So uh, the Oxford no platforming, I thought, was a, a good snapshot of how difficult it can be to have serious moral discussions, important discussions, I would say, on campuses these days. The one place you would expect it to be very feasible and perfectly desirable to have those kind of discussions. I mean, the idea that you can't talk about abortion because you're a bloke and all the rest of it is, you know, obviously absurd and completely and utterly aggressive. Yeah. No question about it. But we had Lionel Shriver on a while ago and she was talking about publishing and the way publishers are going now. And it is, there's this phrase called stay in your lane. Yeah. And this is going through, for example, the arts and culture. Yeah. I mean, 
This is really worrying stuff, isn't it, Brandon? I mean, it, it, you're talking about basically culture as we have known it, more or less actually kind of disappearing. If you, if, if you can't speak it except for in, in terms of very stringent, very, very particular terms, how can you ever write about anything? How can you ever paint anything, whatever? It, it, absolutely. It's the end of literature. It's the mm, end of yes, art. If, yeah. you, if you can only speak to and depict and talk about your own experience, that's the end of literature as we have yeah, known it. Yeah. Um, you know, the very noble enterprise of, of literature and acting and playwriting and art and all these other pursuits, the, the, the noble enterprise was the sense that, it was the sense of human empathy, mm. that you could empathize with people, you could tell their stories, you could feel their stories, you could um, inhabit them and, and present them to the world. That was the idea. It was a, it, a very humanist mm. endeavor mm. in many ways. What you have now is this kind of woke backlash against that idea and this, no, this notion that novelists should only write about their own narrow experiences. Yeah. You know, if you're a white woman, yeah. in the case of Lionel Shriver, who's made some excellent arguments on this problem, then you should write about white womanhood. If you're a white man, you should never uh, try to create a black character. You know, you have no right to do that. Utterly, utterly regressive. And, you know, the, the notion of cultural appropriation, which is one of the worst aspects of woke culture, is this, um, it, what it essentially is, is, is a demand for cultural purity. Mm. So white people should stick with white culture, whatever that is. Black people should stick with black culture. Mm. Um, gay people should stick with gay culture. Straight people should stick with straight culture. And, and what you realize is that what presents itself as a progressive liberal left-wing idea is actually incredibly regressive and more um, indicative of, of the kind of far right or, or yeah, the yeah, old exactly. far right, exactly. you know, the notions yeah, yeah. of racial purity, yeah, yeah. cultural purity. A white person could never possibly understand a black person or a Jewish, a Gentile could never possibly understand a Jew. That is an incredibly destructive, divisive, mm. highly racialized view of the world. And that's one, so, so what woke culture has done to art, I think is a very good um, insight into what it intends to do to society more broadly, which is this kind of compartmentalization of people according to race, according to sex, according to narrow personal experience, rather than the traditional, more positive approach of saying, look, we're human beings, let's understand each other. This is though an entirely Western thing, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I think it, 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 to the extent that it expresses itself in other parts of the world, it would be, I think, in a, it would be more explicitly traditionalist. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, in parts of the Middle East, um, it's undoubtedly the case that women are told mm. that there are certain things they can do and certain things they can't do. Um, men and women are seen as being very different and uh, never the twain shall meet mm. apart from for narrow purposes. Um, so it, to the extent that there is that kind of racialization, sexualization, that kind of um, separation of groups according to their inherited traits, I think in other parts of the world it would express itself in a more religious form or a more mm, traditionalist mm. form or a more cons uh, uh, an explicitly more conservative form. Um, whereas what we have in the West is this in very intense, this is what's unique about it to the West, it's this incredibly intense, pseudo-progressive, um, quite new, historically speaking, um, campaign to uh, 
undermine all the gains that have been made over the past mm. 30 or 40 or 50 years in, re in relation to racial equality and sexual equality and gender equality, it really kind of shoots down all of that yeah. by saying, well, actually, um, we're, we're not as similar as we thought and maybe we should all creep back into those kind of little boxes that we used to be in in the past. So someone like Lana Shriver makes that point incredibly well, which is, um, you know, she is one of those people who sees herself, who would have seen herself as very much being part of the counterculture of the 1960s and the 1970s when you were ripping up, you know, the old scripts and saying, I'm a woman and I can do whatever I want, or I'm a white person and I will write black stories. All those kind of developments took place. So someone like her would see the current woke culture as actually an attack on the counterculture. So I think what we're witnessing is, is you know, politically, political correctness presents itself as an extension or a continuation of the struggles of the 50s and 60s, whereas in my mind it is a com the complete Completely, opposite yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. Also another part, as you've already alluded to as well, is that amongst uh, the people who would call themselves woke, and you mention them as being, say, like middle to upper middle class and what have you, or, 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 or many of them anyway, there is also a good old-fashioned social condescension, isn't there? Oh, yes. I mean, in class terms almost. Yes. That's a key aspect of it. You know, mm. I've often thought that identity politics is essentially a way for upper middle class or middle class people to look down upon the masses, but in a way that seems more politically correct mm. than it would have done in the past. Um, you know, one of the key aspects of identity politics is it allows people who are actually have had a very comfortable life and a very nice life to play the victim. Mm. So if you look at, for example, the Rhodes scholars at Oxford who go around saying that these statues of Cecil Rhodes are deeply offensive and cause them to feel the wounds of history and all this other nonsense that yeah. they talk about. And you think to yourself, hold on, you are in one of the most prestigious universities <laughs> in the world. Uh, there are millions of people yeah. who would you know, sell their grandmothers to be in that mm. position. Um, but who never will be because they haven't had the opportunities that you guys have had and yet you're playing the victim mm. So it allows them to assume this sense of victimhood as a way in essence of lecturing the masses mm. of society Who they see as unenlightened and racially unenlightened and sexually unenlightened and stupid and feckless and um, Hoodwinked by the Daily Mail and hoodwinked by Nigel Farage. They really do look upon those people with utter contempt and I've heard them expressing that contempt I have actually heard it when I've had debates with some of these people and they will openly say things like people don't understand politics they didn't know what they were voting for in the EU referendum they are easily brainwashed they're easily led mm. they're gullible they're fickle all those kind of old almost neo-Victorian arguments mm. about the idiotic throng in society you know the kind of thing that John Carey wrote about very well in his book The Intellectuals and the Masses which yes, was about yeah. the kind of mm. literary set in particular in the early the late well, if you if you go back to the Bloomsbury group yes. and then people like Virginia Woolf the horror of the crowd that's I mean, right she, she you know she's she sees these crowds going I think it's to George V's coronation or something and she sort of says oh these appalling ugly yeah. masses <laughs> of people and all the rest of it this is very is it very very strong isn't it there? yes so. and 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 that's coming back I mean mm. maybe it didn't ever go away fully but it's now coming back explicitly and I hear echoes of that kind of Virginia Woolf style contempt or you know and there were other writers too of course um, I hear echoes of that now in a lot of the kind of woke 
discussion. Yes. Um, and this sense that there is this swathe of people out there who are not very well educated, not really in tune with the right way of thinking, um, too right-wing, too anti-EU, too much enamoured with the tabloid newspapers, all these things. And I hear exactly the same kind of snobbery that existed in the early 20th century, which, of course, there was a lot of anti-tabloid sentiment in the early mm. 20th century. Uh, a lot of these people were very worried about the rise of mass education, um, mass publishing, mass tourism, mm. all those things which really started to emerge in the early 20th century. Um, they use those things to express their contempt for the masses themselves. And I think that's coming back uh, with a vengeance. You mentioned the Brexit and the role that this has played. I, I have to be, I have been surprised by the level of, of, of snobbery, you mm. know, there's no getting, <laughs> that has been revealed by the referendum, what was revealed by the referendum, which has yeah. been ongoing, you know. As you say, the implication is these people didn't know what they were voting for. We, on the other hand, we knew exactly what we were voting for. Yeah. And all the rest of it. Um, when it comes to Brexit, Spikes has just endorsed the Brexit party, hasn't it? Yes. And you've not endorsed a party ever before, have no. you? Uh, yes. So this is the first time we've ever endorsed a political party. We've mm. endorsed the Brexit party in the Euro elections, yeah. um, which are happening soon. And we hope they do incredibly well because it will be another statement of people's intent to leave the European Union. I sometimes find myself thinking, you know, how many times do we have to say yeah, this? Yeah. You know, UKIP, when it was run by Nigel Farage, as, as you will know, um, won the Euro elections in 2014, 14, right? Yeah. Um, and then in 2015, UKIP did incredibly well in the general election. Mm. And then David Cameron did very well because it, I would say largely because he promised to have an EU referendum. Then, of course, we won the EU referendum and 17.4 million people voted to leave the EU. And then in 2017, 80% of voters voted for the Conservatives and the Labour and Labour on the basis of manifestos that promised to respect the yeah. referendum result. You know, we have spent years and years and years yeah. voting to have a referendum or to respect the referendum. So there is this incredibly strong democratic public desire to leave the European Union. Um, and Spiked is a very pro-democracy publication. We think democracy is one of the, it, well, the most important political value. And so the thing that worries us about the kind of Brexit phobia that exists in British society now uh, amongst the chattering classes and the political class and the media class is that it is going to, or could potentially, undermine the largest democratic vote in the history of this oh, country. Without question. And you're yeah. absolutely right that the, one of the key drivers of that sentiment is blind, unquestionable snobbery. I would go so far as to say it's class hatred. I mean, I never thought I would see class hatred come back in the way that it has. And the, the things that I hear people say or read them say about the, the low information electorate, you know, which is another way of saying they're, they're thick as idiots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were hoodwinked by a bus. You know, apparently the NHS promise on the side of a bus is the reason people voted to leave the EU. Um, you, you know, they were won over by demagogues. Mm. You know, these demagogues kind of invaded their brains and, and basically controlled them like Manchurian candidates to vote for leave. That's really how the political elite views ordinary people. And what I find interesting about that and terrifying about that 
is that the exact same arguments were made against the Chartists when mm. they were arguing mm. for the right of working class mm. men to vote in, t in the 1840s and against the suffragettes in the 1910s when they were arguing for women's right to vote. The same arguments, which is that the working classes are too visceral, they don't really understand, mm. they're not rational, or women are, you know, they're way too emotional. They couldn't possibly understand big important issues like constitutional matters or legal matters. Those same arguments are now coming back against Brexit voters. It's interesting because you see, what it tends to suggest is that something I always thought was the case, I, you know, that basically that kind of snobbery was sort of essentially not really there anymore and all that mm. was a complete illusion because we have a different establishment now, you know. I mean, you know, you've had a long political journey yourself, uh, Brendan. When you were, you know, when you were writing in the 1990s or whatever, did you think that that kind of establishment was no longer there? I mean, I, I, I grew up at a time which was quite meritocratic. That was the idea. Yeah. What, what I'm asking you in a way is, was it actually ever meritocratic, do you think? I think there was, a, there was definitely a period of that, um, particularly in the 60s and 70s, 70s and maybe say, even yeah. for some of the 80s, possibly. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking this, in fact, when Albert Finney died um, mm. recently, and I was thinking about, because um, he came from a, actually a lower middle class background, lots of people think it was a working class background, um, went to RADA, became the toast of Hollywood, became the toast of British cinema and so on. And... Um, his experience is the kind of experience that doesn't really exist anymore. So he went through the grammar school system. He was pushed by his grammar school teachers to go to RADA, which working class people never went to RADA. Mm -hmm. um, and there was this sense of opportunity and possibility and that ordinary people were as good as the sons and daughters of lords and ladies and, and bureaucrats and everyone else. That has definitely slipped away. But what I think is interesting is that um, the people who are now promoting the notion that ordinary people are kind of inferior, politically inferior, morally inferior, intellectually inferior, it's no longer the kind of top-hatted, tough, Tory kind of person who, who will absolutely have made those kind of arguments 60, 70, 80 years ago. It's not those people who are making those arguments now. It's the trendy supposedly Marxist, very overly educated, I would say, um, leftist types, that kind of new establishment, mm. the new establishment, and they don't even think they're establishment because... Oh, no, they're really, in a perpetual state of yeah. counter-culturalism. Counter no, uh, they, they yeah. really do yeah. think they're the rebellious yeah. force in society, and you want to say, to, like, you know, momentum and Corbynistas and everything, and you want to say to them, no, you are the emerging establishment, yeah. and that's just something you have to accept. But the, the snobbery now, which I do think echoes that snobbery of the past, which was the idea that there's this scary, terrifying throng of people mm. who don't know what to think and don't know how to behave and don't know who to vote for, that idea has come back. But what I find really worrying about the new snobbery is that that idea is now expressed by people who claim to be progressive, who claim to be liberal, who claim to be anti-TOF. Um, so there's been a real shift in terms of who is motoring and promoting snobbery. Yes. Your own political journey, to use that terrible cliche, <laughs> which, you know, journey, uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been interesting. I mean, you were originally writing for Living Marxism. Mm. You were in the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, a bit like Claire, who was on Claire Fox. Who was yes. On it. Um, where would you, how would you define, how would you define yourself now? I mean, I've heard you, you, you called yourself a, 
an atheist libertarian. Is yeah. that right? Is that is that does that cover it? Um, I'm an atheist. That's a fact of life. Um, although I do think. I'm not a new atheist. I'm not one of those people who goes around all the time saying, I'm an atheist. <laughs> I think it's the least interesting thing about someone because all it tells you is what they don't believe in. Yes, exactly. I want yeah, to know yeah, what yeah. you do believe yeah. in. So I, those people who go around saying, oh, I'm an atheist, it's like people who go around saying, I'm a vegan. Yeah. You're like, okay, give it a rest. But they'll always tell you. They'll always <laughs> tell you. The first thing they'll say. Yes, yeah. So I'm an atheist. Um, I'm a libertarian in the sense that I believe very strongly in liberty, particularly freedom of speech and individual liberty. And I'm pretty much off the mind that people should be allowed to say and do whatever they want so long as they don't hurt anyone else. So that's the extent to which I'm a libertarian. But the most important word I would use to describe myself today is Democrat. I, I, I think democracy is a, an incredibly threatened political ideal. And I, I'm a Democrat not because I think people always get it right. People often elect governments and I'm thinking, why the hell did you elect that government? but because I really genuinely believe that the best way to do politics is to engage as many people in the discussion as possible. And, you know, it's a point the Chartists made. The Chartists made a point in one of their newspapers. They said, look, we're not saying that working people are just as good as lords and ladies and bureaucrats at doing politics. We're saying that they're very often better. And they're better because they live in society, really in society, in a way that those people often don't. And that's an argument that often gets lost these days. And the point I want to make in relation to Brexit and other democratic issues is that, you know, the, the former factory workers in Stoke or, the, or the, the girls in Essex or the coal miners in Wales who voted for Brexit, perhaps they understand what Britain needs better than the people who live in the Westminster bubble and never leave it. And that's the argument we've got to push now, I think. So, Brenda, you, uh, you were born in London, like me. Um, what about your family? Are they Brexiteers too? Or, uh, you know? Yes, or um, pretty much. Not all of them, but most of them are. Um, I was born in London. My parents are from Ireland, the west of Ireland. They came here in 1970 right. and um, for work, to, yeah. to find work and to have a family and everything else. Um, they had a large family, as Irish Catholics tended to do. Um, so there, I, there are six of us, six siblings. And of where, are those, in the, where are you in the I'm in the middle, right, okay. two older, three right. younger. Um, and off those six siblings, five are pro-Brexit and one is anti-Brexit. Right. But we're very sympathetic to him. We don't treat him badly or anything oh. like that. So, um, but I think that's fairly typical mm. for... Um, because, you know, the thing that people forget about London, and this really, really irritates me, people forget that one and a half million Londoners voted for Brexit. Oh. London is seen yeah, as yeah. Uh, the Remainer city. But more, if more people voted for uh, to leave in London, 41%, than voted for Sadiq Khan. That's absolutely actually. right. 200,000 more <laughs> voted for Brexit than yeah. Sadiq. So when Sadiq swans around saying this is the Remainer capital, you want to just remind him, hold on. Brexit's more popular here than you are, uh, democratically speaking. But, you know, um, what's fascinating to me, and this fascinates me about Brexit in general, but even in the context of London, I think that the divide, th there's a class element to the divide. And so there are working class pockets in London where there will be very strong pro-Brexit sentiment. And then there are other parts of London which are middle class or working class and middle class, yeah. where there will be very pr strong pro-Remain sentiment. So even in London, I find the patchwork of differences incredibly interesting. Are, are your family still in London? Are they all? Are they, yes, are they, are they, they still live here. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were they, I mean, 
we, when, when I was growing up, we, as a family, used to talk a hell of a lot about the news and stuff. I mean, were, your, were they politically interested, your family? They were, yeah. We talked about the news, we watched the news, we read the newspapers. Yeah. Um, it, I, you know, the news was seen as something you ought to be interested in. You yeah. really should have, have a stake in what's going on. You should have a sense of what's going on. Um, and it was seen as something that it was, you know, you couldn't just go through life without understanding your surroundings. I think some of that might be lost these days. Yes, or I, or yeah, certainly yeah. I think people have a, a more confused and difficult and strange relationship with the news now, partly because of the rise of the internet and social media and the fact that you have to kind of almost make your own news or find your own news. So I think it's more difficult. But back then, there was a very strong sense that you had to buy a newspaper every single day. You should read it. You should talk about it. You should yeah, watch the yeah, news at nine yeah. o'clock, which is when you found out what had happened. Yeah. There was no other way of finding out what yeah. had happened in the day. So I think like most families, there was this sense that you had to keep in touch with the world beyond your own house. Was it, when were you first interested in politics now? Because I mean, you, I said you were at the beginning, you were in the Revolutionary Communist Party. Yeah. Were you from the start or were you politically, political before that? I mean, when did you become so interested? So really in the kind of early to mid 1990s, yeah. um, when I, in my late teens, I kind of started getting a sense that I was I was thinking I'm quite left-wing, but none of the left-wing parties were attractive at all, you know, mm. like the SWP and all that. Yeah. They all struck me as quite um, bovine, you know, they, yeah. they, they, they were not very intellectual. They were almost um, proud of the fact that they were not very intellectual. Um, they all had. They all used to put on these kind of very whiny pseudo working class accents. You know, I call it the Ken Livingstone accent, yeah, this, kind yeah. of, th this kind of attempt to ape what they think is the way ordinary people speak and that used to always really put me off um so i would i looked at radical left-wing parties and thought none of them are for me but then the revolutionary communist party which i eventually joined um and then it disbanded a year later so i was oh, in it really? for an incredibly oh, okay. short period of time um just looked like a more attractive proposition it was very smart it was very intellectual it had as you say it had people like claire fox it also had Mick Hume, who yeah, was yeah. the editor of Spiked before yeah. me. You know, these were very smart people, very engaged people. And Frank Ferreira was and Frank yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it was very different to the mm. other parties. It was much more switched on. The people looked that they, they they dressed better than the other parties, which seems quite important. Um, they were more engaged in ideas. They were more willing to talk about the world as it was, rather than this kind of fantasy version that some on the left have. So uh, that party looked to me to be more interesting. I think even when I was in it, I was aware of the fact that this was the end of an era. You know, communism, Marxism, I mean, those things, in my mind, this is my own personal view, it's, they're dead and gone, right? That was a very interesting experiment, it was a very interesting moment in political history. It won a lot of allegiance from a lot of people. But I do think those things are history. And what right. I'm interested in now is not so much left versus right or Marxism versus capitalism and those kind of old arguments. I'm much more interested in where the new divides are emerging, where the new politics is coming from. And I think some really important political divides are emerging right now. And those are the ones I think it's worth thinking about. It's very interesting you say actually that, you know, you say those ideas are dead and gone because for quite a long time, um, you know, what Claire might say, what you might say, people who have been in the Revolutionary Communist Party, 
there's been a real kind of um, uh, sense of similarity with people on the right, you know. They mm. tell we very much agree about, well, free speech, we very much agree about the risk aversion, culture, all of these mm. things. But they were always cultural aspects. So I often wondered where, therefore, people in, who were formerly of the RCP stood economically now. I mean, yeah. it's one area. I mean, do they actually, I mean, do you actually think, therefore, that capitalism is not going to, you know, de you know, deconstruct because of its own internal contradictions? Do you not believe that anymore? I mean, well, my issue with capitalism at the moment, and I wrote about this in The Spectator a few years ago, I wrote a piece and I think the headline was something like, help, I'm a Marxist who stands up for capitalism. Because right. my issue with capitalism at the moment is that is its lack of daring, its lack of ambition. Mm. And so the problem of risk aversion is a very serious problem. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that so much of the modern economy is devoted to financial questions and financialization and the loss of any sense of the importance of creating new um, opportunities, yeah. new jobs, new work, um, new ways of doing things, new ways of transporting things. It strikes me that capitalism has lost its own sense of itself mm. and its own sense of ambition and its own project of transforming the world. Um, so when I look at capitalism now, I don't think, when the left looks at capitalism, they think, oh, it's it's gone too far, yeah, it's yeah, doing too yeah, much, it's, yeah. it's too global. What I want to say is that it's not done enough mm. and it's not ambitious enough and it is constantly beating itself up over the fact that it, I don't know, causes pollution or um, causes inequality and all these other things, which is undoubtedly true. So I, I, I come at this from a slightly strange perspective, which is that I actually want to encourage capitalism to go further and further because I think the creation of wealth and the creation of opportunity and the creation of work is so important. You know, when I see environmentalists marching through the streets, as Extinction Rebellion did recently, calling for an end to economic growth, calling for a shift mm. away from the question of economic growth, mm. I, want, I find that incredibly inhumane, mm. right? Because we live in a world in which three billion people exist on less than $10 a day mm. um, and live in dire conditions mm. and, and extreme poverty. And I find it extraordinary that in, in a time like that, people could march through the streets calling for an end to economic growth. So I think the contemporary anti-capitalism is not the kind of thing you would have had 50 or 100 years ago among leftists, mm. which was always about how can we create more stuff, how can we have more production, how can we have more consumption. Mm. Uh, the problem with contemporary anti-capitalism is about how can we have less production, mm. how can we have less consumption. It's about reining in, and I find that really worrying. What's quite interesting about the way that capitalism is behaving now, or at least on the surface, uh, surely, is that it's adopted, to go back to our first subject, the whole woke agenda, has yes. it not? Yes. This is the extraordinary thing. This is not a public sector thing anymore, is it? Yeah. Capitalism is incredibly woke. It's, it's very PC. It's very green as well. But is it entirely cynical, do you think? Or, or you know, is it pure sort of shop window dressing? You know, if you look at 
all the sort of boxes you have to tick in the public sector. Yeah. You know, your average human resources department now in any corporation <laughs> yeah. will be exactly the same. Um, I think there's an element of window dressing, but I think the scary thing, which is the thing that is far more difficult to grapple with, is that I think they a lot of them really mean it. Mm. They really have bought into the woke agenda and the green agenda and the kind of PC agenda. And I think it's an expression of um, capital, capitalism's loss of drive yeah, yeah. Um, and and they disguise if you like they disguise that loss of drive by adopting all these new ideas and phrases and terms to make it look like they're being progressive and and nice mm. you know um, caring capitalism as they call it but in fact actually if you scrape all that stuff away what you really will find is an economic system which is no longer um, driven by any sense of ambition or any sense of um, uh, growth and is constantly wanting to rein in and be more meek. Mm. So I do think their embrace of the woke agenda is partly a way of saying, we're nice guys, don't beat us up so much. Yeah. But also, yeah, more yeah. significantly, yeah. I think it does speak to the fact that they actually buy into that stuff. Mm. This is what I find, uh, you know, I, uh, anti-capitalism, I think, is now the core ideology of capitalism itself. So when you have anti-capitalists kind of in Europe outside these kind of at Davos or the G8 meetings or whatever else it might be, screaming about how evil capitalism is, I always think, hold on, the people inside those conferences probably agree with you more than you realize. Mm. So um, capitalism itself is in serious danger of becoming anti-capitalist. And the problem with that is that we could see a down, even more of a downturn in relation to production and consumption. You mentioned again there woke, uh, which is uh, part of the whole coin of the whole free speech and uh, offence um, subjects that we've actually t touched on t today. Um, just wanted to ask you, Brandon, when it comes to these issues, such as what seems to be a constriction of free speech, um, as imposed by woke people, you mm. know, and the culture of offence, isn't the problem that essentially people have now, you know, internalized these things mm. so much that you actually don't have to worry in a way about making sure they go, they abide by it. They sort of internalize things. They don't, they sort of, I feel now amongst people, there's a great confusion about what actually they can and cannot say anymore. Mm. And so therefore, you know, in a way, um, it's almost like job done, if you yeah. know what I mean. I think that's absolutely How right. How do we actually move away from that? If that's, if yes, that's the big question. And I sometimes think to myself that if it was just old fashioned, boot on the face state censorship, it would be easier because yeah. you'd know where the problem of censorship was coming from yeah. and you'd, you'd know what needed to be done to challenge it. You'd need to dismantle those laws. You need to put the state back in its box. Exactly. It would be much yeah. more straightforward. But I think you're absolutely right. The problem we have now is the internalization of the censorious dynamic. Yeah. And the New Culture Forum has done lots of work on this, of yeah, course. Yeah, well, we did stuff on, uh, on uh, free speech and what people felt they could say around about the same time as you, I think, were doing stuff on, about campuses. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, you're talking about three or four years ago now. That's right. But the thing is, that, that what it comes down to really is, okay, so how do we get, you know, if you've got to a position where basically free speech has become quite constricted, how does it then become unrestrained again? It's the million dollar question. And I think, you know, the point, people will often say things like, oh, it's only censorship of the state, does it? The, you know, yeah. I, I encounter this argument all the time. 
I counter it from the left and the right, in fact. I, leftists mm. will say, you know, our no-platforming of people is not censorship because oh. it's just a kind of voluntary group demanding the censorship of this person, but, and it's, but it's only censorship of the state does it. I hear it from the right, too, who will often um, be quite cavalier about censorship on social media by Twitter and Facebook because they will say, well, these are private companies, it's not the state, so it's okay, we shouldn't worry about it. And the point I make to both of those groups of people is that they need to go back and read John Stuart Mill on liberty because in that book he articulates incredibly well that often the biggest problem in relation to censorship is not the state and not law but is the tyranny of custom, mm. the tyranny of wisdom, the tyranny of um, the accepted way of understanding the world. And that's a very informal social pressure to conform and to say the right thing and to think the right thing and to silence your opinion if it's the wrong opinion. So Mill talked about that huge, enormous, informal pressure to conform mm. to the the accepted way of thinking. And I think we have a real serious problem with that now where people have internalized uh, this. It's like this Stasi in your head. You know, you don't need mm. the Stasi up in your attic anymore spying on you because you have your own Stasi in your brain mm. telling you, well, you shouldn't say that because you'll become, you'll be very unpopular if you say that. You might lose your job. You might be banned from the social media. So just suppress that opinion. And it gives rise to, there was a, there's a European sociologist, I can't remember who it was, but they talked about the spiral of silence. Mm. And it gives rise to this spiral of silence where more and more people simply do not express themselves. The reason that's a problem is because public discussion becomes increasingly dishonest mm. and partial and all opinions don't find expression there. As to how we should challenge it, I really do think the onus should be on encouraging people to be braver to take risks and I think people who are already in the public sphere for good or ill um, can lead that by saying the unsayable, by expressing the opinions you're apparently not allowed to express to really give a bit of a lead to others and say look you can say these things and that's why I think something like Brexit and ensuring that Brexit happens is so important because that's a way of saying the establishment doesn't want us to have this opinion about the European Union, but we're still going to have it and we're still going to make sure that it actually happens. And that in itself would be a good signal to people that it's, it's okay to have unfashionable opinions. Brendan, thank you. Keep on expressing yourself, <laughs> please. Uh, thanks very, very much for coming thanks, in. Peter. It's great. We could have gone on for a lot longer. Um, thanks very, very much for watching. Please do subscribe. This little thing will come up shortly and you can and then uh, subscribe so see you next time and thank you very much for watching goodbye